It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I'm your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist L. Joy Williams. And I am so glad that you made it to class this morning. It has been some time since I have had my, my, my thoroughest girl with me on the show. And I am happy. June like the month, Moses like the Bible. Hey, June. Hey, LJ Williams. How are you doing? How are you doing? I'm so excited to see you. I know. I'm so excited. It has been some, it, it's been a while since we've been back and we're missing you know, our, our third thoroughest girl, Laree Daniel Favors, but she's over on every day in the morning, killing it. Yes. yes. Killing it. Some great conversations. And for, you know, for things that don't fit the show, I end up, you know, sending them her way, but they are doing some great, she's doing some great conversations over there. So I'm really, really happy. Make sure you are listening to Laree Daniel Favors on Sirius XM Urban View during the week. And at some point, you know, she's getting so big. I don't know if she'll be able to come back on, on Sunday Civics June. I don't know what you think. You know what? I think she's going to come back because you never forget where you started. <laughs> I don't, you, you never forget your people. <laughs> well, listen, there is a lot going on. Mm. And I tweeted about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, was it a couple of weeks? I feel like all of these weeks seem so long mm. about being tired of being on the defense. And with so many things happening across the country, I mean, you know, we've, we've had a conversation about following the education dollars that have come down from the federal government in the stimulus packages, our children who are uh, severely impacted by COVID, not only about their loved ones and their change in behavior, but also just their, their future. I mean, this is going to be a, a point in our history books in terms of children who were in school during this time and what it means for their future. So that's happening. You also have people struggling financially and concerned about whether or not they're going to be evicted or what they need to, what they need, or foreclosed on, right? So you have people concerned about housing, you have people concerned about work, you have that going on, you do still have a health crisis going on. So while people are, yes, getting a vaccine, or not getting the vaccine, people's choice, right? You had a health, you know, People had health problems before this. Our health infrastructure was not set up to address this. There has not been anything significantly done about our health infrastructure in order to prevent it or to be able to address other health inequities happening across the country. We still have police departments <laughs> that have not been held accountable across the country and trying to ensure that we are not just throwing, continuing to throw money at an infrastructure and a, a law enforcement structure that is needs to be revamped and changed. It's 
a lot to be on the wall about, June. And I'm like, see, you do like the big picture stuff and lay out the things. I'm like down here on the ground going, okay, how do we get this rent arrears money? How do we make sure that people take care of these past things? How do we make sure that people who are on the edge with food insecurity make sure that they can still feed their family and yet meet all these other obligations? You know, yeah, there are jobs, but the society has spoken. If you're not coming up with at least $15 or more, they're not coming. So there's so many things going on in the biggest piece that none of us are really talking about, even though it was supposed to be cachet like it was back in the 70s and 80s, therapy, mental health. We really need to make that the wave because you see it daily. People are popping off over the personal stress, the stress of family, their children, the children are under stress. Not only are there going to be studies, but just are we going to even be able to survive to get over the hump? Because I'm watching Young, old people like me dropping dead from heart attacks, strokes, all these things that weren't addressed during coronavirus. And we're watching everything shift behind the scenes. Subsidized housing went from 30 to 40%. Uh, everybody is easing up the pricing on things. So everyday folks are feeling squeezed to the point where they're popping off like popcorn. We definitely need to address the mental health issues that everyone is experiencing or else all of our high hopes could come crashing down and our democracy could crumble. Yeah. Well, you know, re re related to that, as you mentioned, there are all of these pieces, all of this infra infrastructure that is directly connected to government, right? It is government, it is politicians, it is though it is those institutions that have to address some of these problems because we can't do it individually, right? We can band together. Yes, we can create mutual aid societies. Yes, we can help our neighbors, help our family, help our friends. But as you mentioned, like our bandwidth as individuals, you know, it, it, it's, it's really difficult. So you need government to respond to a healthcare crisis. You need government to respond to an, economic crisis and an economic crisis, meaning jobs, meaning state budgets, meaning the federal, but like you need that large institution in order to address that. And it's not like the, in, the institution is not Siri. The institution <laughs> is not Alexa. There are people who we have elected or who were elected that are participants in that structure, which is government, that need to act on our behalf. Thank you for saying that. I don't need you to take a knee with me. I don't need you to come out and, print and paint a mural with me. I need you to flex your power. I need you to, it's, it, it's always, we're in a constant, uh, what is it, campaign season, like forever. It seems like a forever campaign season. You're always, cam everybody's always campaigning. Part of that is also doing your job because if you come into campaign, if you can't show me your work, you're gonna get fired. And it feels like there's a lot of people who want a firing. So we're gonna need people to actually go, wait a minute, I work here. Oh, wait, I have a staff that can help. Oh, wait, look, we got a bill. Oh, look, we can do things. And until, again, Democracy crumbling, 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 crumbling. <laughs> We've got to pull it together. Well, related to that, the reason why I brought it up that way is, you know, it's government is not a robot. It's not an all-knowing thing that is acting 
to address these issues proactively. It moves at the pace that the people who have been elected, it moves at their pace. And unless we put pressure on them to address these things, then it won't be addressed. Because those people, that institution only moves to the things or away from the things that they're getting yelled at about. I mean, it's true. I mean, they may have some individual pet project or something that they want to do on their own. But for the most part, if you as a senator, as a state, a state legislature or a council member, an alderman, you know, what, whatever, you are responding to the people who are calling you who are talking to you and the issues that they are bringing forth. And right now you can see who is talking to whom by what they're addressing. And that's the good thing. Thank you for doing the show because I, we're going to need more people to come into that private group because we need to start sharing our magic and our secrets. And you've put so many of us to work to push the politicians, so many people who didn't feel like they could go and visit them. They could come in, and you even taught us how to go in there, how to put things together and leave something in their hands so they remember what you're talking about. So you've turned us all into politician teachers, and <laughs> more people will start to join the private group so we can all talk about how we're getting this done and share ideas so we can make this more of a movement and make them move quicker or get them some Pepto. I don't know. What do, what do we need to <laughs> Well, listen, let, let me bring up an example related to that. I'm going to bring up an example. So we're going to talk about, we have Lee Chapman from Deliver My Vote, who's going to come on later. And we're going to talk about this onslaught of voter restriction bills that are happening all across the country. And I want to bring an example of, that's connecting that conversation to what I just said about responding to people who's responding to you. Okay, there is a, a, a story th that is out now about the uh, legislation that was passed in Georgia, which further restricts a number of things in terms of voting rights right now. And the governor, that there was an individual who is a part of financing the restrictive, the voter restrictive bills that are happening all across the country. And she boasted he or she boasted about meeting with the governor before the bill passed and was saying, if this bill passed, I, you need to sign it right away, like no delay or anything like that. And then the record comes out because of freedom of information to the press, shout out to the press for doing their job. Yeah, she met with him and she met with him, right? And so uh, here's an example of people responding to those who are elected, responding to the people who are talking to them, who are calling them, who are meeting with them and exerting their power to the people who have been elected, right? So that's an example. That, that's one example, right? And so I, what I'm saying is that our voice has to be consistent and loud, consistent, persistent, and loud in order to move folks, right? I'm like, look, I, I, you know, I like Chuck Schumer, right? You've seen my schedule. You've seen how many times I've met with Chuck Schumer since he's been now, you know, leader. 
and pushing and people are this conversation. Oh, we got to give them some breaks some time. They're trying. I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. You are there to do a job, which is represent me. So I am going to communicate consistently, persistently my needs and what our community needs and what, and what we want. That is the, the attitude that we have to take because yes, we do not have the big money. We do not have the big power individually, like this one individual was able to meet with the governor, you know, in Georgia. But being consistent and persistent and organizing collectively to make sure that our voices in terms of what our people need, what our communities need, what our states need, that is important to do. And one way to voice that is by the vote, which is the reason why there is this point to restrict it. Right. So we're going to talk about that when we come back <laughs> with more Sunday Civics. June, June, we have to we, we I, I'm looking forward to Larie coming back to us. I think she, maybe she'll be back soon. We'll see. We'll, I got we'll a to OK, maybe right. we'll, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll email her team and ask her. But we'll be back <laughs> with more Sunday Civics. And Lee Chapman from Deliver My Vote will be with us to talk about our right to vote and the attack on our right to vote. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm your host and civics teacher, L. Joy Williams. And I want to continue our conversation where we were talking about voting rights, talking about the onslaught, the backlash, if you will, or white lash, if you will, that's happening across the country, attacking our voting rights on the state level. And to have that conversation, joining us is Lee Chapman, who is the executive director of Deliver My Vote, which is an organization dedicated to increasing voter participation and turnout by making voter easier and more accessible, particularly for those of us who are going to stay at home and vote, to make sure that it is easier and accessible both at the polls and at home. And so I want to say welcome to Lee Chapman. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me here today. I appreciate it. No problem. So we've been having this conversation and it seems you know, I don't even know where to begin. Earlier in the week, I tweeted about like, you're, you're seeing this white lash happen all across the country. And like you, like you want to fight that, but you're also fighting other things. <laughs> like cause it, it's happening on, you know, in state budgets, it's happening, trying to follow the money from the federal government down to the local level as it pertains to education dollars. There's a lot happening at one time. You're still trying to keep distance from people and keep a mask on, even though you're vaccinated. Lee, it's a lot happening. Yeah. <laughs> it is definitely a lot happening. But I, before we get into our in-depth conversation, I wanted to start, since this is your first time on Sunday Civics and at the front of the class, if you will, why don't you share with us the story of your first civic action? Sure. So... You know, my parents um, took me to vote at a very young age. And, you know, I started probably at the age of 11 going to the local mall in California where I'm from. I'm from San Diego, registering voters to vote. So I started at an extremely young age, um, you know, helping people um, register to vote and make sure that their voice was heard at the ballot box. But 
Um, a little bit about me. I am an attorney by background, although I do not practice currently, but um, I got my start at um, an organization called Advancement Project, which is a racial justice civil rights organization. And I was a young attorney back in 2013, and I was tasked with um, working on the Wisconsin voter ID lawsuit. Um, so I was going to Milwaukee um, pretty much every week. Um, and my, my job on that lawsuit was to identify those voters who were not able to obtain a, an ID because of the restrictive law in Wisconsin. So I was going to homeless shelters and food pantries and churches and just talking to voters, mostly black voters, about the obstacles that they faced um, to voting. And that was really the time in my life where I realized, okay, I want to dedicate my career to making sure that, you know, our people, communities, people of color can, can vote and, and cast their ballot. And I had a witness on that case. She was 90 years old. Um, she was born in Mississippi and her family migrated to Wisconsin, to Milwaukee, you know, for better opportunities during the great migration. But she was born at home to a midwife and her um, birth was recorded in the family Bible. Um, and she had voted at every election. She was a poll worker, but because of Wisconsin's restrictive ID, she didn't have a birth certificate and she couldn't get that ID. And her daughter ended up spending over $2,000 in legal fees just for her to cast a ballot. So that was really like the transformational point in my life when I had an opportunity to, to put her on the stand, to have her share her story about how she voted in every election, why voting was important, but she could not vote because of the voter suppression laws that we've seen in recent years um, in states like Wisconsin. So, um, you know, I feel like that was a pivotal time in my life where I wanted to dedicate my career to um, making sure that we're protecting it and expanding the vote. Wow, there are so many across the country who have dedicated their career to <laughs> protecting, enhancing, uh, mm -hmm opportunities for the right to vote. And, you know, one of the things that's challenging, even in the current conversation that's happening, whether it's Texas and, you know, Florida, all of the, I think there's at this point, like up to 400 bills in state legislatures across the country. When you get to the conversation about voter ID, mm -hmm. there, there seems to be like, it doesn't matter if you're Republican, Democrat, or others, particularly those of us who, you know, we have ID, we use it pretty regularly. Yeah. Somebody asks you for it. They're like, what's the problem with showing ID? Mm -hmm. Right. Talk a bit about, you know, I have my own <laughs> way of handling that. But there are people listening who, you know, people are used to, if you have an ID, oh, just showing it. They're like, I show it to get in the club. I show it to, you know, match my credit card to buy something at the store. I show it to get in the hotel. I show, right? What's the big problem? What's the big issue? Yeah, I mean, over 11 million people do not have the types of ID that states are requiring for people to vote. Um, you know, I think that one of the issues too is that IDs cost money. And in order to get an ID, you have to have underlying documents like a birth certificate, which also costs money if people do not have it. So these are like needless and unnecessary barriers to vote. Um, 
you know, a lot of other states allow you to bring your utility bill or another form of ID that people might have. When I was in Wisconsin, there were a lot of people who had bus passes that had their picture on it, but the state wouldn't allow them to use that to vote. So these are really just needless barriers. They're discriminatory barriers. They're unnecessary. And, you know, we should be in the in the process of making sure that more people can cast their ballot and not make it harder for people to cast their ballot. I think I think that's an important point because people we don't realize right what other steps I mean we know it internally right mm-hmm. we know that oh I got to get a copy of you know this driver's transcript or something like that mm-hmm. and those of us we take for granted that we can just oh I have an online account with the DMV I'll just go online and do it and it's twelve dollars and it's fine and you know, go on about your life, right? But as you point out, if you don't have the other things that are needed in order to uh, get that primary document, I know for me in Kansas, I was born in Kansas, getting a copy of my birth certificate from Kansas is a whole deal. Right, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. and it depends on your state, on right. like you, be- you being able to get it. So if I didn't have ID, Right. If I already am penny pinching, every money is going, you know, Mm -hmm. to certain things and just something as simple as just like, I just want to be able to register and go vote and go about the rest of my day. You've now put extra hurdles in my way that now if I don't have a birth certificate, now I got to contact the county government and, you know, figure out how, you know, what process or whatever I need to bring in order to make that happen. It's also $20 to do this, you know, to do this Mm -hmm. thing. I have to wait. Now I have to figure all of that out before the deadlines to register and to vote. Like it's It's it's, complicated. Right. It creates barriers. And the premise uh, that they are putting putting ID being necessary, that somehow there are random like thousands of people showing up to go vote who don't have like who and like who are coming to front. Like it's just it's not happening. Yeah, and to further complicate it, one of the rules that we're now seeing, or one of the laws that we're now seeing states pass, is that ID is now required to vote by mail. So you have to actually submit a copy of your ID in order to cast your ballot by mail. First off, who has copy machines in their home? You know, who has printers in their home? I know (laughs) I'm now working from home and I'm struggling to try to figure out how to copy and print things. It's just not something that's easily accessible to, to voters. So that's another barrier is requiring those copies of IDs in order to vote by mail. Yeah, uh, it. we know what it's about. And for those of you who are listening, who are asking, well, what's wrong with an ID, right? You're, you're putting something in place that, first of all, there's no issue of thousands of people showing up in droves, waiting in line or requesting <laughs> absentee ballots in order to you know, move an election. It's just not happening. It's, it's hard enough to get people who are actually eligible to vote than it is to just get random, random people, you know, trying to commit fraud, like trying to commit voter fraud. That's number one. Well, number two, the other thing that we're seeing in terms of these bills before we just talk about some of the work that Deliver My Vote is doing, which I guess is related, is expanding the opportunity and the process, the option to vote, right? So Mm -hmm. not just going to the polls, but being able to go to polls more than one day. 
you know, so having early voting hours uh, because people's lives are, you know, uh, different. And so having different time options and day options for people to vote. And then as you talked a bit about at the end about voting by mail, providing drop boxes and no excuse absentee uh, voting, things of that nature. We've also seen in these proposed bills a restriction of what already existed, right? Mm -hmm. So early already had early voting hours, probably had it for over a decade, you know, or five years or so, and now we're gonna restrict it. Now we're not gonna do it on Sunday. And as it pertains to voting by mail, already had, you know, laws in place to allow voting for voting by mail, but now we're gonna restrict it. Talk yeah. a bit about that. So, you know, voting rights and the struggle for voting rights um, has all been about power and preventing certain populations from voting in our in our democracy. So, you know, whenever there's been an expansion, um, there's an immediate contraction. So, for instance, look at Reconstruction, right? During Reconstruction, over 2,000 African-American men actually were elected to office around the country. And then right after that, we saw backlash. We saw Jim Crow laws. We saw literacy tests. We saw, you know, all of these obstacles um, to make it harder for people to vote, which is why we have the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So there's always been this constant struggle in our country. And, you know, in 2020, voters turned out more than we've seen in over a century, over 160 um, million people cast their ballot. It shattered records. We were in the middle of a pandemic. But one thing that you mentioned was that advocates, national organizations, state organizations, you know, they really wanted, they really pushed to make sure that voters had every option to cast their ballot, whether that was early in person, um, by mail or in person on election day. And I think that advocacy and also everything that was happening in our country with regards to, you know, like the racial reckoning we were going through, you know, people really saw the connection of their vote and change. So we had shattered um, turnout records. And so what we're seeing right now is that restriction, you know, opponents of our democracy, Republicans around the country are trying to silence um, people from voting. They're trying to make it hard for black and brown voters to vote. So that's why we're seeing all these restrictions to, you know, cut early voting, to cut souls to the polls on Sunday when when black voters tend to, to cast their ballot after church, um, you know, to get rid of those drop boxes, to prevent states from automatically mailing ballots to voters. It's all about putting obstacles. And one thing you mentioned this um, when we started this conversation is, you know, progressives, um, you know, we're focused on all the issues, right? We're trying to fix the criminal justice system. We're trying to fix our ed broken education system, healthcare, making sure people have COVID vaccines. Um, but opponents of our democracy, they are focused on the big lie and legitimizing the fact that you know, Trump um, um, lost the election and trying to find voter fraud that we know that does not exist. And all of their efforts are focused on that. So um, as advocates that focus on voting, we need to make sure that we're putting a full court press on and that we are using all the tools in our toolbox to make sure that we are fighting against these bad laws, that we're fighting in the courts, and that we're also having direct conversations with voters one-on-one -on -one, well in advance of election day. I think that's an important point. And it's also important to point out that we've been here before as a country mm -hmm. um, because, and it, it, 
being a student of history and sort of being able to read things on a page from like the 1890s, right? And knowing that, okay, so people got free, you know, they started being elected and actually mm-hmm. enacting laws on the state level, on a municipal level, on a federal level that would enfranchise other people, have them on the same footing, building coalitions, progressive coalitions with, you know, along across racial groups that was really about class and everybody's life. That happened. And then what immediately happened afterward? Jim Crow. And Jim Crow, the backlash, it, it, it was not only in the streets, it's really important to know it wasn't just about white people not liking black people or white people in the Klan, the type of people that happened in the courts, that mm-hmm. happened legislatively on the state level, and it happened on the federal level. And that's the part that we are in right now. Mm-hmm. When you have coalitions being built, you have people coming together and looking across racial lines and um, looking at economic angst across the country and really building a movement to enfranchise and empower people across the country, well, now we're going to determine, we need to restrict who's eligible to vote now, Lee, because this can't happen. Exactly. (laughs) You know, so then what what comes um, next after that is this extreme divide that we already have in terms of the economy and in terms of the rich and those who are not mm-hmm. is going to get much wider because that's when you get, you know, the setup for the Rockefellers and these huge families that are have this investment on infrastructure and power across the country. We're, we've we've been down this road before. Yes. Yeah. History is repeating itself. It really is. And um, you know, opponents of our democracy are just really trying to rig the rules in their favor so they can pick their voters, which is undemocratic. It's un-American. But, you know, there are a few bills on the federal level that I'm happy to talk about um, that could fix this, but it's going to require a fight right now. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that fight, that fight that's happening on the state level and on the federal level. We're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about how we fight this, because it's not just about knowing where we are. It's also arming you with the tools necessary in order to fight back. So we'll be back with more Sunday Civics. How can it be that you love the most unlovable part of me? We're back with more Sunday Civics. And You know, before the last break, we talked a lot about what's wrong, what's happening across the country on the local level, on the state level, and obviously on the federal level as it pertains to your voice, your vote, and your power in this attempted democracy, if you will. (laughs) So we're talking about voting rights specifically, Lee. And you mentioned just before the break that there, there are some bills on the federal level. We'll start at the federal level and let's just, you know, go down to the state level. But on the federal level, there are attempts. One is HR1, the For the People Act, which has already passed the House and is, you know, imminent in terms of whether it's going to be brought to the floor once we get the votes in the the Senate. And then there's also the John Lewis Voting Rights Act as well. So let's start with HR1, which is one of the like biggest <laughs> bills because it not only addresses 
voting rights and create sort of a standard across the board. Some of the standards in is that states have to have at least two weeks of early voting. There's automatic voter registration, no excuse mail-in voting. All of that is in H.R. 1, in addition to some campaign finance pieces as well. What are your, what are your thoughts on whether or not um, or how we get close to passing H.R. 1? Yeah, H.R. 1 or S1 now in the Senate is critical because we need to have more national standards when it comes to voting. Like there's no reason why, you know, voters in states like Oregon, or Colorado, you know, they're voting by mail exclusively. Um, but you look at Georgia, where we saw voters stand in line for what, 10 to 12 hours to vote last year. So throughout our country, there's 13,000 different election jurisdictions. Elections are run. 13,000 different ways, actually, you know. Um, so HR1 or S1 is a really an attempt to standardize elections around the country so everyone's on an equal footing. So everyone can have um, at least two weeks of early voting, um, including weekend voting. Um, people can vote by mail. They can have same-day voter registration, automatic voter registration. Um, you know, voters shouldn't be kicked off the rolls. One thing that we've seen over the last few years is that states have been amping up their voter purge efforts. So if you don't vote in a few elections, um, a few federal elections, you're actually kicked off the rolls. Um, so that's something that we have been seeing increase. So this bill really has everything that would expand access to the ballot box, which is really critical. And just looking at automatic voter registration alone, if there was nationwide automatic voter registration, we would add 50 million people to the rolls. So it's a transformative bill, but because it's so transformative and because it would open up access and have more people participate, which is what we should want in our country, um, opponents of our democracy are really fighting against it. So it passed in the House. Um, it's currently in the Senate. Um, Senator Schumer has indicated that he wants to bring the bill to a, a vote on the floor in the end of June, but because of you know the makeup of the Senate, there, and also the fact that um, you know we have the the filibuster, um, there needs to be ten Republican senators to vote for the legislation. So, and that's an uphill battle, um, unfortunately. So you know, um, there are a lot of organizations that are really fighting and advocating and lobbying because they want to make sure that we have. Um, expanded access to the ballot box and we can stop a lot of these restrictive bills that are moving forward and passing and being signed by governors in states like Georgia and Texas and Florida right now. Yeah. You know, I remember uh, having a debate, I believe, in college when I was sort of more moderate, <laughs> you know, than I, that I am progressive. It's, it's interesting because it's like, I'm like extremely progressive in terms of taking care of people. But then I'm like, yeah, I don't want federal government doing a whole bunch of trash <laughs> because, right? Like, I don't want a federal database of certain things because I'm like, yeah, no, I, I can see how that can go wrong. But I do believe, as proposed in HR1, that there should be a federal standard. Mm -hmm. There should be a standard and there should not be this wide breadth of depending on your zip code where you right. reside that you have 
you have or don't have access to be able to determine who represents you, mm-hmm. whether that's on a local level, on a state level, or on the federal level. There should be some standard practices. Now, how it's implemented, you know, is is another question, right? That happens on the state and on the local level, but there should be some standard. And there should not be, well, I need to, and, and nobody's making a decision to move to a different state based of solely on the ability to vote. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like we like we know that's not happening. So there needs to be some standard and standard of early voting, standard mm-hmm. of mail-in voting, standing mm-hmm. of voter registration, all of that, and also providing resources to states to mm-hmm. be able to stand up that infrastructure, which is something that doesn't get talked about a lot. Right. Yeah. Even within states, there are, you know, this happens all the time here in New York where we'll say, oh, yes, we should do this thing and New York City can pay for it, but mm, Buffalo can't. Right. <laughs> you know, like or some other place in the in in the city, I mean, in the state, I mean, and that's the same thing across the country. New York may be able to fund or uh, stand up an infrastructure on early vote, but can Kansas, can Wisconsin, can Utah, right? Like how, uh, and so HR1 also provides that support and infrastructure to help states be able to meet this. Yeah, and the resource point that you brought up was so essential because um, in the 2020 election with the pandemic, we knew it was going to cost, it was going to cost a lot of money for states to move to mail voting, especially states that never had it before. So um, a coalition of organizations were pushing for the federal government government to allocate $3.6 billion in funding, which didn't happen. And, and actually private foundations stepped in. Mm-hmm and created funds to give to state election officials so they could fund elections. And guess what we're seeing now in Florida, their restrictive bill um, prevents that from happening. It, it restricts election officials from taking that private funding. So, you know, it's, it's, they're looking at every little thing and they're trying to turn it back. So, you know, foundations aren't able to, you know, give to election officials anymore, um, even but though they're- Lee, But corporations can come together and give money to support the efforts to restrict voting rights because actually a lot of corporate and individuals who have given money to, you know, I think it's only two or three uh, organizations that are actually funding the efforts to put forth these restrictive bills. So Mm -hmm. like foundations can't give money to the, the, but corporations can give money to actually restrict voting. Right. I know. It's crazy. So in addition to HR1, now S1, as you mentioned, there's also the John Lewis Voter Rights Act bill. I like to think of HR1, S1 as the prevention, right? Mm -hmm. And think of John Lewis Act as the, you know, the post, right? Because from a voting rights standpoint, there's how do you create a structure and how do you ensure people are their rights are affirmed, their right to vote is affirmed, right? So there's no barriers ahead of time. There's, you know, a structure put in place so that you can fully participate and engage. And then if ish happens, (laughs) then this, you know, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act bill kicks in. It's how do states who have a consistent pattern of discriminatory and restrictive voting rights? How do states who will in the future act in these restrictive ways, how do we address that after the fact? Mm -hmm. Do I got that right? 
Yeah, so both bills work perfectly together. S1, HR1 for the People Act, it expands access. You know, it creates national standards where the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, it prevents racial discrimination from happening. So it would, um, it would block some of these bad bills that we're seeing. So just to give um, a little bit of background, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 had a really core component called Section 5. And that created a formula so states that had a history of voter discrimination, um, you know, states that had those literacy tests, they had to have any voting change approved by a federal court or the Department of Justice before it could go into effect. So if a state wanted to implement a voter ID law or move a polling place, they had to have that pre-cleared to make sure that it just did not discriminate against voters of color. And so that worked very well. It, it blocked bad bills coming out of Texas and Georgia and, you know, these states that we've seen um, trying to discriminate against people of color. But in 2013, there was a Supreme Court case called Shelby County versus Holder that basically gutted Section 5. Um, the Supreme Court said, you know, this is based on 1965 data. It's now 2013. There's been progress made. So they put it in the hands of Congress to write a new formula to figure out what states needed to have this pre-clearance, um, you know, before they could implement um, laws to make sure that they did not have a discriminatory impact. So since 2013, we have had no protection. And that's why, you know, we've seen Georgia uh, uh, pass bills making it harder to vote or Texas um, you know, it's just, oh, it's open season now that we don't have Section 5. So the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act um, creates a new formula. It's a more modern formula that's based on current conditions. And um, that's essential because that's the best defense. It, it prevents bad bills from discriminating. So if the Texas bill that luckily was blocked because Texas Democrats walked out um, the night it was supposed to be voted on, that would never pass muster under Section 5 if we had that. So that's why it's so critical that, you know, we are advocating for these federal protections because states are really just going full steam ahead because there's no accountability. And the only way for um, organizations or for the government to prevent these discriminatory barriers from, from going into effect is by suing. And, you know, lawsuits take time, they're expensive. You can usually only sue after, you have to prove that there's a harm. And so that usually happens after an election. Um, so that's why Section 5 is so important because it stops bad laws from going into effect in the first place. Yeah, you know, it all, it's always bothered me that you have to have the harm first. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. I mean, even thinking about here and not that there's an extreme, you know, here in New York, we are going to be the largest city to implement ranked choice voting. And not that there is anything inherently racist or discriminatory with ranked choice voting as a voting method. Mm -hmm. But as you know, having done voting rights work as well, you know, the implementation, <laughs> you know, yeah. can be a problem, right? Mm -hmm. And so even now it's like, you need to wait for the election to happen and for people to be disenfranchised, for people to not be able to engage or have it whatever in order to actually sue or do something to actually provide a remedy. Right. That is super frustrating. <laughs> and to be a and to say that I have to wait until someone's voice is not heard to say that there is harm done before we can do something. 
Yeah. And I mean, organizations, they do sue in advance of an election, but it's just really hard to show the harm. You know, that's the, just the most challenging piece of, of of that work. So that's why we need to have Section 5. That's why we need to, to advocate to prevent um, these bills from going into effect in the first place. Yeah. So, Lee, before we go, I want to talk a bit about Deliver My Vote. Yeah. Um, I, I want to talk about the work that you all are doing in the organization. And, you know, I had an opportunity to check out the case study of the programs that the organization ran in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Florida, and particularly as it pertains to engaging what we in the field or those in the field called infrequent voters, right? Mm -hmm. People who only come, you know, who are only voting really around the big elections, mainly presidential, sometimes mayor's races, depending on the state or, you know, or governor's races. So I wanted you to have an opportunity to talk a bit about that case study because, you know, organizations like yours, like here in New York, you know, we know for a time that if you actually engage with voters, voters will actually participate. It seems like such a basic thing to understand, but somehow we don't. Yeah. So Deliver My Vote, we're a nonpartisan nonprofit organization. We were actually founded in 2019 and our mission is to increase voter turnout in underserved communities. And we do that by having conversations with voters all year round um, on how to register to vote and in particular how to vote by mail. Um, to make sure that they can take control of their vote and have it counted. So, you know, vote by mail, we saw a surge in vote by mail in 2020. Um, in, in the 2016 election, only about 20% of the population cast their ballot by mail. But in 2020, we saw that go up to 43%. So voters are using it, you know, voters really use it in 2020, just let's be honest, because of the pandemic. But um, vote by mail is is here to stay. I think voters liked it and they want to use it moving forward. And it's one method of voting that is proven to increase voter turnout. So, um, you know, typically in an election cycle, um, get out the vote efforts, really ramp up around October, you know, right before the election. That's when you start getting those calls and those text messages and, you know, making sure that you're you're on the rolls, you're checking your voter registration, that you have what you need, you know, your polling place. If you want to vote by mail, you have that information. And so what we do at Deliver My Vote is we start that conversation earlier. We start that conversation in January of an of a election year. Um, you know, we have canvassers that are knocking on doors, having conversations with voters to make sure they're registered, to make sure that they are requesting their vote by mail ballot. And this work is going to be more essential than ever um, as we're leading up to the 22 midterms because of all of the changes in election law that we're seeing around the country. There's going to be mass voter confusion, right? Um, You know, as we talked about, the, the timeline to request your vote by mail ballot is being shortened. Some states are requiring you to have a copy of your ID to mail in with you. Um, you know, the drop box, the ways to return your ballots, those are changing. Some of them are preventing curbside voting. So what we think is essential is voters need to have that information about how to vote in their state now. So as, as national organizations are advocating in Congress or as groups are suing in states, 
um, you know, trying to prevent these bad bills from happening. What we're doing is we're having conversations with voters um, well in advance all year round to make sure that they have the tools they need to, um, to register to vote, to cast their ballot by mail. And also if they wanna vote in person at the polls, we give them that information too. So we believe that it's important to develop relationships with voters, have constant communication um, so voters can make their own vote plan and follow that through. Hmm. Well, Lee, I, I really appreciate the work that you're doing and organizations, as you mentioned, will, you know, we're on the defense of trying to prevent a lot of what's happening across this uh, across the country. And a couple of weeks ago, you know, I tweeted about this. It's like, I'm tired of being on the defense. I was yeah. like, we need to like be on the offense at some point, like, <laughs> you know, th that we can advance and push push through something. And, you know, my husband, um, bless his heart, is 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 so despondent about, he was like, we have control of everything. How come we can't just, how come okay, we can't just make it happen? And I'm yeah. just like, it doesn't work like that. I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> you, I mean, know. you know, I, both of us, you know, we both worked on numerous election cycles and 2020 was the longest election cycle that I think we all have worked in. And, you know, people are tired and it's just so blatant what's happening right now that the efforts to make it harder for black and brown people to vote, but we can't stop. You know, we just have to make sure that we are continuing to have conversations with voters. And really, you know, the best solution is that voter education um, because we don't want it to be too late and, and voters not have the resources or know how to how they can cast their ballot and take control of their vote because that's what the other side wants to happen. They don't want people to turn out. And we can't let that happen. Yeah. So uh, to your point, just as we wrap up here, the individual person who's listening to us, what do we say to them about two or three things? Because listening, watching it on the news, you're in another state maybe, and all of this is happening. Maybe it's happening in your state. Maybe it's happening in a, you know, a state next door. But you're also you know, you're not engaged in the day to day fight sort of like I am, like you are. What can that individual person do as we see this happening all around us? Yeah. So, you know, first off, I would say go to delivermyvote.org, sign up. Um, you know, we will be having volunteers that can we can plug into the work to make sure that, you know, you are making calls to voters to help them make that vote plan to provide educational information. But, you know, I think the most important thing to do is really just to talk to your friends and family about what's happening. Talk to them about this blatant concerted effort to make it harder for for, you know, pretty much all Americans to vote, um, but with a particular focus on people of color. And make sure, you know, people are checking their voter registration. Make sure you're registered. Continue to check, you know. Um, if you want to vote by mail, sign up for that now. Um, a lot of these new laws are going to require people to sign up every single year to vote by mail. Um, and make sure you're participating in every single election. Don't just wait for the presidential or the midterm election. You know, there are critical elections that are happening in 2021, you know, school board races, municipal elections um, um, that that are critical for the health of our democracy and for, you know, um, the cities that you live in. So make sure that you're participating in every single election because we have to elect leaders that are, that we hold accountable, that care about democracy, that want to, and that want to improve access to the ballot and not restrict it. 
Well, Lee, thank you so very much for taking an opportunity to join us. Uh, we look forward to having you back at some point to talk more about the work. And again, for those who want to volunteer, there are things that you can do from your couch, from your home, mm -hmm. just like we are trying to make sure that you can vote from your home um, yeah. so you can um, actually engage and participate in that way. Lee, thank you so much for joining us and we'll hope to have you back soon. Thank you. We'll be back next Sunday with more Sunday civics and more ways for you to take civic action. Have a great day. Oh,